The Old Testament reading today is Genesis 24, that is the sermon text, and in fact you'll notice I do not have a New Testament reading for today, only because the Old Testament reading is so lengthy. And so we'll read Genesis chapter 24 in its entirety, and then we'll progress through it today. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made The camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Abraham, uh, my master, 
who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he, that is the master of Abraham, said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife from my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son." Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelet on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness, faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And they arose in the morning and said, Send me away to my master, her brother. And her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, 
Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman, women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned to, from Ber Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? Their servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it this morning. It's a long story, isn't it? I think we should note the length, by the way. It's a significant story, an important story. In fact, I think the story of the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah is one of the most beloved stories in the book of Genesis. It's a very happy story. Some might even call it a romantic story. And it's not uncommon for pastors, I think particularly youth pastors, I used to be one, uh, to interpret this story as if its purpose was to provide guidelines for finding a spouse. Have you ever heard this text preached in that way? Maybe you can think back to your youth days and you go, yeah, I do remember. I have heard the text preached like this. Here are five principles for finding a godly spouse or something like that. And friends, though it be true that there is something romantic about this story, it's a happy story. Isn't it good to see that Isaac was comforted after the death of his mother? Isn't it good to see Rebekah and Isaac joined together? All of that is true. But its purpose is not to show us how to find a spouse. Instead, the purpose of this text is to once again highlight the Lord's provision and His faithfulness to fulfill the promises that He made to Abraham. This theme stays with us, doesn't it, throughout the book of Genesis? In fact, it's a theme that will continue on through the whole of the Pentateuch. The theme of this passage is the provision of the Lord, His faithfulness to fulfill the promises that He made to Abraham. The Lord promised that Abraham would have many descendants. Nations and kings would come from him. Specifically, the promises would be fulfilled through Isaac, the son of promise. And now that Abraham is advanced in years, he is concerned to find a wife for Isaac. Not only that Isaac might be comforted by her, but also that he would bear children by her, thus fulfilling the promises of God concerning a multitude of descendants. I do not deny that there are some interesting observations to make along the way that do pertain to finding a godly spouse. I'm going to make some of those observations, but those observations are tangential to the main point, namely the fulfillment of the promises of God made to Abraham through Isaac and his blessed wife, Rebekah. This passage is a little bit difficult to preach, actually, and for two reasons. One, it is very long. It's a very long text. And two, you notice it's a bit repetitive. The story unfolds and then the story is retold by Abraham's servant. And so I have decided to 
preach the passage in this way by saying a brief word about each of the main characters that we find within it. One, we will consider Abraham and his diligence. Abraham and his diligence. Two, we will consider Abraham's servant and his obedience. Three, we will consider Laban and his greed. Four, we will consider Rebekah and her faith. And lastly, fifthly, we will consider Isaac and the fact that he was comforted. And so let's begin with Abraham and take special notice of his diligence. Abraham was diligent here. Abraham, being now very advanced in years, was diligent to find a bride for his son Isaac. And it should not be difficult to understand that the fulfillment to the promises of God concerning a great multitude descending from Abraham would require that Isaac be married and have children. And so what do we see here? We see that Abraham is concerned about that and he is responsible and diligent to commission his faithful servant, his most faithful servant, to go and to find a bride for his son. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice something here. I hope that as you consider this narrative, you are able to recognize that trusting in the promises of God does not mean that we are to sit idly by waiting for their fulfillment. Do you see that principle here in the text? It would have, in fact, been irresponsible for Abraham to sit around waiting for a bride for Isaac to to just magically appear. Based upon the promises of God made to Abraham, Isaac would surely marry and have children. If If Abraham were just to sit back and to consider the promises of God, I suppose he could reason this way. It's going to happen. Isaac has been born. God has given him to to me and, and to us. Uh, Here he is, certainly he's going to marry and he will have children. But it would have been wrong for Abraham to sit idly by waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. Instead, it was right for Abraham to take the initiative to send his servant to find a bride for him and to bring her back. Uh, This was Abraham's responsibility. And throughout the pages of Holy Scripture, we see this, this principle unfold. We see that God is sovereign over all things, and yet we also see that human beings are responsible. Have you noticed that? We see it in Scripture, and we also see it in our daily lives. These two things, God's sovereignty on the one hand, and man's responsibility on the other hand, they do not contradict one another. In fact, they fit together hand in hand. God is sovereign. He has decreed. From eternity past, all things that shall come to pass. And he also providentially rules over his creation. He will surely do it. He will bring his decrees to pass. He will carry them out. But please understand that God's sovereignty does not do away with the free choices of human beings, nor does it remove our responsibility. Instead, what we see in the scriptures from beginning to end is that God, who is sovereign over all, will indeed bring about His purposes, and this He will do through the free choices of responsible creatures. The two things do not contradict. Now, I will admit it is mysterious to me, as it probably is to you, as to how exactly God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together. It's very complex, isn't isn't it? I can't wrap my mind around it, but I know it is true. I I know it is true for sure because it is what the Scriptures teach. God is sovereign over all. Nothing is outside of His control. He will surely do all that which He has decreed, and yet you and I are responsible creatures who make real choices. Perhaps uh, no single verse 
demonstrates this better than Acts 2.23. If I want to prove this point, I oftentimes go here, though we can go to very many places. There, Peter is found preaching to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And he says something very interesting. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now here it is. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You say, what does that passage have to do with the one we're studying in Genesis now? Well, I'm just saying it in this one verse, verse 23 of Acts 2, we have both of these truths put forth by Peter. God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible. Christ was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? Of God. It was His plan, His purpose. It would surely happen, and yet you guys messed up. You crucified Him, and it was wrong that you did it crucified at the hands of sinful and lawless men. It is mysterious, isn't it, as to how exactly those things fit together, but what do we see? God is able and He has a habit of bringing about His purposes, not by fighting against the free choices of His creatures, but by using them somehow. The things fit together, hand in hand, or maybe better yet, hand in glove. They are not in competition, but they they comply. Uh, they they, they complement one another somehow. Our, our God accomplishes His purposes in the world in this way. He is sovereign, even over the event of the crucifixion. And yet man is a responsible creature. And Abraham knew this. Abraham knew this. He, he when he considered the promises of God, knew for certain that Isaac would have a wife and kids someday. By this point in his life, I think he had matured enough to say it's surely going to happen. He, he had seen the Lord's faithfulness. And yet Abraham also knew that he was responsible to act for God brings his purposes about through the free choices of his creature, through his creatures. Do you remember how Abraham got into trouble earlier in his life when he convinced his wife to lie, saying only that she was his sister, and by going along with Sarah's plan to have a child by way of Hagar? Do you remember those episodes? I'm sure you do. In those instances, we criticized Abraham for his lack of faith. There we said that Abraham should have waited upon the Lord instead of taking matters into his own hands. I'm sure you remember that. But notice this, Abraham failed in those instances, not because he took action. That is not what we criticized. It was not that he took action that was the problem, but he failed because he acted contrary to to the law of God and without faith. In those instances, his, act, his activity was fleshly and faithless. But please do not misunderstand. This does not mean that we are to sit idly by waiting for God to magically fulfill His promises. The Christian life is to be characterized by activity, diligent and faithful activity. The Christian is to be active knowing that God will accomplish His decrees through the activities of His free creatures. Let me ask you this, has God promised to sanctify you if you are in Christ Jesus? Has He promised to make you more and more holy, to mature you, to refine you? Yes, we find promises like that throughout His Word. Indeed, He has promised these things. But notice that we are also exhorted in the Scriptures to pursue holiness, to to take the initiative, to act 
Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And so see, therefore, that God has promised to make us holy, yet we are responsible to strive after holiness. Similarly, has God promised to preserve you if you are in Christ Jesus? Indeed, He has, and I am sure of this, Paul wrote, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's one of my favorite verses. I'm so encouraged by the fact that God has promised to finish His work in me, and that ultimately it is His work. And yet we are also responsible to persevere. The writer to the Hebrews offers these words of warning, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the Scriptures teach both things. God will do it, but you're responsible to take action. You must, you must take care, brothers. You must persevere. And so God is sovereign. He will bring about His purposes. He will fulfill every one of His promises. And yet this He will do, not in competition with, but through the free choices of His responsible creatures. And so, brothers and sisters, I am saying, trust in God, but also take action. Will God bring every one of His elect to eternal life? Will He? Yes. But you'd better preach the gospel, brothers and sisters. You'd better pray for the salvation of the lost. Why? Because God will bring about His purposes concerning the elect through us and through our activity. We cannot sit idly by and reason that because God is sovereign and will do it, we have nothing therefore to do. We must be busy in the Christian life, diligent, responsible, to obey the Lord and all these things. Trust in God, but also take action. Pray that the Lord would provide for you and your family, but also get up and go to work. Ask the Lord to give you victory over sin, but choose not to sin. And rest assured that the Lord will preserve you if you are His in Christ Jesus, but never, ever, ever grow slack in the Christian life. You must preserve to the end in Christ, knowing that there is no salvation outside of Him. So, See here that Abraham was diligent to find a wife for Isaac. He took action, not because he lacked faith here, but because he knew that the fulfillment of God's promises would come about through his faithful activities. Abraham walked by faith and not by sight. But here I am emphasizing that the walk of faith does involve walking. <laughs> it involves walking. Not only was Abraham diligent to send his servant off on this mission, notice he was also diligent and responsible to give him very specific instructions. He made his trusted servants swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that he will not take a wife for his son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom Abraham dwelt, but that he would go to his country and to his kindred and there take a wife for Isaac. That is Genesis 24 verses 3 through 4, altered, altered slightly uh, to fit into the sermon here. Certainly, it would have been easier to take a wife from amongst the Canaanites. Do you see that? So there's Abraham dwelling amongst the Canaanites, the people of the land, and there's probably very many eligible young ladies living in close proximity to Abraham's clan. Not to mention that Abraham probably could have bettered his position in the land by making an alliance with someone via marriage, as was the custom of the day. But Abraham insisted that a bride be taken for his son, not from amongst the Canaanites, but from amongst his own people back in Mesopotamia. Calvin states that the reason for this is that he would not allow his own race to be mingled with that of the Canaanites, whom he knew to be already divinely appointed to destruction, yea, since upon their overthrow he was to be put into possession 
of the land. I think that is an appropriate insight here into why Abraham did what he did. Notice this, though. The Abrahamic covenant was a fleshly, earthly covenant at its core. Abraham was concerned to preserve the purity of the covenant by taking a wife for his son from amongst his own people and not the Canaanites. This is a fleshly thing. This has to do with race, doesn't it? This has to do with genealogy. But there is, of course, a new covenant parallel to this principle. The new covenant is not a fleshly covenant, but it is a spiritual one. The new covenant is not confined to a particular race of men. Indeed, all who have faith in Christ, Jew or Gentile, are partakers of the blessings of the new covenant. Christians are therefore free to marry all kinds of people. Ethnicity is no barrier to marriage as a Christian under the new covenant. But the Christian is to marry specifically whom? They are to marry in the Lord. Marrying someone of a different race will have no impact upon the purity of the new covenant, for it is not fleshly and earthly, but spiritual. What matters is faith in Christ. So the Christian is free to marry all kinds of people, all sorts of people, provided that they marry in the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, if you hope to marry in the future, be resolved to marry in the Lord. Be sure that that person has faith, and by that I mean true faith. Not just a profession of faith, but one that is credible and true, as best as you can tell. Be sure that they have faith in Christ Jesus. Marriage is a true blessing, it is. But a bad marriage can make a real mess of things. It can bring all sorts of difficulty into a covenant household. So marry, marry in the Lord according to the command of Christ in the New Testament. Notice also that Abraham insisted that his servant not take Isaac out of the land of promise. The servant's question was a very reasonable one. He said to Abraham, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me out of the land. I mean, come on, Abraham, you want me to journey so far away and to go to a place? I've never met these people. They don't know me from Adam, right? And I'm going to walk into this village and say, I'd like to take your daughter with me back to my master. Um, maybe they'll refuse. It's a reasonable thing. Uh, Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Maybe I'll take Isaac back and they can meet him and get to know one another. But Abraham's reply was very firm. See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from this land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. And this proves what I said earlier, that this entire episode is not so much about principles for finding a godly spouse as it is about the fulfillment of God's promises made to Abraham. Abraham was to have many descendants, and these descendants were to possess the land of Canaan. And that's the business that the servant is to be about. He's to go get a wife for Isaac, and she is to dwell with him in the land of promise. I think Abraham's faith is impressive here. He took action. It's already been emphasized. But notice that he did not cut corners here. He had been known to cut corners in the past, hadn't he? He refused to take the easy route. Sure, it would have been easier to take a wife for Isaac from amongst the Canaanites, but he was not willing to corrupt the covenant. And he would have been 
it would have also been more reasonable to take Isaac back to the homeland to meet the potential bride. That, that made more sense. But Abraham would not risk the abandonment of the land of promise. Brothers and sisters, following Christ in this world often requires this kind of resolve. It often requires this kind of resolve. It often requires God's people to do things that are a bit contrary to reason. It would be easier to take this route, I think. But yet, because I am devoted to the Lord, I will not. I will have resolve. No, I will not take the job, for it will require me to work on the Lord's day. I'll keep looking for another, trusting that the Lord will provide, and I will worship according to His word. Or, no, I will not marry this girl. She's wonderful in every way, but she does not have faith. I will trust that the Lord will provide another. These are not easy decisions, friends. It's easy to talk about them here from the pulpit, but you put yourself in the midst of them, all of a sudden, this is hard. This has to do with my livelihood. This has to do with marriage, things that are so important to me. These are not easy decisions. But following after Christ in this world does require this kind of resolve. The straight and narrow road is sometimes a very difficult one to travel. Secondly, I want to say a brief word about Abraham's servant's obedience. And I will warn you ahead of time, I will not say as much about each of these characters as I've said about Abraham. But let's look at Abraham's servant's obedience this man is everything that a faithful servant should be. Wouldn't you agree? Notice that this servant does not have a name. Obviously, he had a name. But we're not told what it was. We're left to wonder. His name is not recorded in the historical record. But that should not matter to a servant. Wouldn't you agree? A servant's desire is to do the will of his master and to promote his name. And what I am saying is that the same should be true of us as we serve Christ. May our highest aim be His glory not our own, not the promotion of our name, but His. Notice also how hesitant the servant was to take an oath that he did not understand or maybe could not fulfill. I respect that about the servant. Abraham wanted him to swear by the Lord, by the Lord's name. And he would not do it immediately. He asked for clarification before placing his hand under Abraham's thigh. We raise the right hand in our culture. Sometimes we sign our name he was to put his hand under Abraham's thigh. You and I can talk about the significance of that another time, I guess. Um, but notice that he obtained an exception also from Abraham before swearing. Abraham released him from the obligation, saying, But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. And, and what I am saying is this, that we too should be very careful with the oaths that we take. We should take them seriously. Our yes should be yes. Our no should be no. This should be true of the vows that we take in marriage. This should be true with the commitments that we make to one another within the local church. Apply it any way you'd like. Our yes is to be yes. Our no is to be no. The servant was very faithful to Abraham. He traveled a great distance. And when he arrived, you notice that he would not rest or refresh himself with food and drink until he finished his master's work. They wanted to feed him. He said, wait a minute, I have to get to the business at hand. May we be did this devoted to our Lord and committed to His work. Our tendency is to put our own work, our own desires ahead of His. May we be primarily about the work that the Lord has given us to do in this world. And notice that this servant also shared Abraham's faith. 
He believed that the Lord would give him success. He prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And then he gave those stipulations. Lord, in this way, show me who the woman is. And when the Lord gave him success, he bowed and worshipped and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. And it, it is not that this Lord was not also his Lord, but it's all about Abraham still. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. He was a man of faith. And may we too proceed in this world as Christ's servants, filled with faith, obeying him in all things. I think we should also briefly consider the character of Laban, the brother of Rebekah. This will be a very brief observation, but notice that he, this Laban fellow, was quite impressed with the wealth of Abraham. Did you notice that as I read the narrative? The narrative only emphasizes a couple things about him, and here are the things emphasized in the narrative. He, take, he took note of the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. When he noticed that, he ran to meet the fellow, right? He man, ran to meet the servant. And then when he was found, he was found standing by the camels at the spring, I think put into today's terms, he was found checking out the servant's Cadillac Escalades. That's what he was doing. Ten camels. These were, these were animals that only the wealthy possessed and there he is checking them out probably thinking man this guy has a lot of resources not much is said about Laban but he is portrayed as one impressed with the wealth of Abraham and he seems to desire to profit from it perhaps that is why he wanted to delay before sending Rebecca away so that he could milk a little bit more out of Abraham's servant before he departed and friends we must be careful to not allow the glitter of wealth to catch our eye and to captivate our affections. To be rich is not sinful. Abraham was very wealthy, but he was wealthy because the Lord chose to bless him in that way. But to love money is sinful. Listen carefully. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. 1 Timothy 6.10 Brothers and sisters, recognize this, that there are some who are rich, who love money supremely, and there are some who are rich, who love the Lord supremely. Similarly, there are some who are poor, who love money supremely. Maybe they're like Laban, who came out and just was entranced by the wealth of Abraham's servant. And there are some who are poor who love the Lord supremely. And so no matter our financial position, we are to be careful never to be entangled with the love of money. Finally, we come to the real star of this story. It's Rebecca. And as we consider Rebecca, I think we are to notice her faith. Remember that Rebecca was mentioned for the first time at the end of Genesis chapter 22. That's the first time we encountered her name in that little genealogy that seemed kind of out of place. Remember, at the end of the story of the near sacrifice of Isaac, there, there was that genealogy of Nahor, the brother of Abraham. And one of the reasons for that genealogy, obviously, was to set the stage for the introduction of Rebekah into the narrative because she is mentioned there in that genealogy. So her name is put forth and then we move on to Genesis 23 and the story of Sarah's death. And we come back and we're introduced 
to Rebecca once again. You should know that her name sounds like the word to bless in the Hebrew language. Her name sounds like the Hebrew word for to bless in the Hebrew language. You and I miss it in the English, but, but she is portrayed even by her name, who was one who, like Abraham, is blessed of the Lord. Rebecca is blessed of the Lord. Notice this about her. She was hardworking and hospitable. Abraham and Lot have already demonstrated that they were a hospitable people. They were concerned for the well-being of the sojourner. This was fitting for them because through them the nations would be blessed. But this has already been emphasized as a characteristic of their clan. Abraham and Lot both were hospitable to strangers. They were concerned for the sojourner. And what did Rebekah do for Abraham's servant as he sojourned? She was concerned to give him a drink of water when he was weary. And more than that, she watered all of his camels. And you need to understand that that was a huge job. She had to run back and forth with that little jar to the spring and back to the trough again, probably dozens upon dozens of times. She worked tremendously hard for the benefit of this stranger. The young woman was not afraid of hard work. Her natural bent towards hospitality made her a perfect candidate as a wife for Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, the father of a hospitable people. In fact, Rebecca met all of the qualifications. She was a girl of marrying age who had not joined herself to a man. She was from Abraham's clan. She was hardworking and hospitable. On top of all of this, she was of beautiful appearance, the text says. And add to this the fact that Abraham's servant had just prayed to the Lord, saying, Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, so on and so forth. Let her be the one. And so all things considered... Rebecca seemed to be the one. It appeared that the Lord had directed the servant to her providentially. Brothers and sisters, uh, you and I, we don't know what the will of the Lord is for the future, do we? That is what I mean by it when I refer to the will of the Lord here. We do not know His hidden or secret will for us. Surely that was true of Abraham's servant up until the moment that he saw Rebekah and she agreed to go with him. He didn't know what the future held, whether or not he would have success or go home empty-handed. We do not know his hidden or secret will for the future. His future providence is mysterious to us. But there is another sense in which we do know what the will of the Lord is. And here I am referring to God's revealed will. And friends, I think we learned something from this story as it unfolds. How the Lord did providentially lead the servant of Abraham to Rebekah. We, we learned that we cannot get hung up on the fact that we do not know the secret will of God. Instead, we must rise up day by day and obey His revealed will. We must obey His law. We must obey His word. And we must go on journeying in the Christian life, trusting that He will providentially guide us according to His secret will. I think you know the song that says, Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's a simple little song, and it's true. Uh, we must rise up each day. We must devote ourselves to obey that which God has revealed, trusting that He will providentially guide us into His secret or hidden will for us individually. That is what Abraham's servant did. And the Lord led him to the blessed Rebekah. But one question remained, would she be willing to go? Would she be willing to go? 
Notice that the choice was hers to make. I think that is significant. She was not forced into this, neither by Abraham's servant nor by her family. After Abraham's servant told the story of God's provision for him, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. And when it was time to leave, they said, Let us call the young woman to ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And what did she say? I will go. I will go. Notice this. Rebekah is in this narrative portrayed as the female version of Abraham. That is how she is portrayed. She, like Abraham, was called to leave her home to go to a land of promise. In fact, it was the same land that Abraham had left so many years earlier. She, like Abraham, exercised great faith when she decided to go. Again, think of how scary that must have been for her to leave her home at such a young age and to go with a group of men that she had never met before. Now, young ladies... The text does not mean go with strange men whenever they ask you to go with them. But in this instance, it was right. She, she knew who Abraham was. She knew of him. He was one of their kinsmen. And here the Lord had providentially led the servant, and there was evidence of Abraham's wealth. That This was not a reckless leap of faith into the dark. She knew what she was getting into. But nevertheless, this required great faith for her to go. It must have been... A very scary thing for this young woman to leave her family behind and to go off to a foreign land to meet a young man that she had never met before. She had great faith. And listen to the blessing pronounced upon her by her family. And I want you to compare it carefully to the promises of God made to Abraham and Isaac. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Now, this might have been a very typical and traditional blessing to pronounce upon a young woman who was about to be wed. But it fits perfectly with what has been revealed concerning the promises of God made to Abraham. Abraham was through Isaac to become thousands upon ten thousands. And it had been guaranteed to him that he would in fact possess the gates of his enemy. Clearly the purpose of this story is to show that it would be through Isaac and Rebekah, now we know that the promises made to Abraham would be fulfilled. Lastly, and, and very briefly, I want to consider that Isaac was comforted by Rebekah as he mourned the death of his mother. That is what the text emphasizes. Uh, this is probably the most romantic portion of this story. It begins in verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Ber Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negeb, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then we read that he took her and he joined himself to her and was comforted by her after his mother's death. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. This we learn in chapter 25, verse 20. But, it isn't, but I think it is interesting that Isaac's comfort is emphasized in this story that is clearly about the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. What is the thrust of the story? God has a big plan, right? He promised to do this in and through Abraham. And don't you see how he providentially brought about the fulfillment of these 
promises made. I mean, that's the thrust of the story. But at the end of it, all of a sudden, the Lord, uh, through his scriptures, emphasizes the comfort that was brought to Isaac as he mourned the passing of his mother. Uh, Friends, God is sovereign over all. He is God Almighty. He will accomplish all of His purposes. But do you see that He is also a compassionate Father who is near to us? Not only was He concerned to fulfill His purposes through Isaac, those those grand purposes, those promises, He was also concerned for Isaac. And He is also concerned for you. Yes, the Lord is accomplishing things in the world that are way bigger than you and I. He is concerned about big things that make the little circumstances of our life seem small by comparison. But our God is so big and awesome that He is also able to be near to us and to be concerned about our little problems. He is concerned to bring comfort to His people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Put into theological terms, our God is both transcendent and He is imminent. He is both high and lifted up, exalted and distinct from us, far beyond us in so many ways. And yet He is the God who is near to us. He is God most high, creator of heaven and earth. He is, but He is also Yahweh, the covenant-making and keeping God, who is an ever-present help in a time of need for His people. Brothers and sisters, as we move now to the conclusion of the sermon, I want you to recognize that the point of the sermon is that God was faithful to fulfill His promises. He is faithful to provide a blessed bride for Isaac so that the promises made to Abraham would be fulfilled. More than that, please know that the Lord has been faithful to do far more than this. He has provided a Savior for us who arose in the fullness of time from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us be found ever trusting in Him, for He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is no forgiveness apart from Him. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we thank You for this very long story. It is an encouraging story. After hearing of the death of Sarah, we are blessed to know that You rose up another, Rebecca, uh, to be joined to Isaac so that the righteous line could be preserved through her. God, You are faithful in every generation. You've been faithful to us personally. May we never doubt your faithfulness. We thank you that you are a big God who is in control. We thank you also that you are a God who is near to us. Father, increase our faith and bring comfort to our hearts, Lord, as we have heard your word proclaimed and as we have been reminded of these things. Bring comfort to our hearts as we do also struggle to sojourn well in this world. Be near to us and care for us, your people. And help us to live in obedience to you always, always clinging to Christ Jesus our Lord to the very end. It's in his name we pray. Amen.